You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now and once again we want to praise you and thank you for the goodness that you bestowed on our life. God, we praise you and thank you for our salvation and the radical change that you are working out in our life through our sanctification. God, I thank you for the positive reports that we heard this morning just about our finances here at this church, God, and the ways that we're being able to uh, use those in a mission-minded way. God, I thank you for Chris and uh, his heart for Uganda. And as he prepares to leave again for this summer, God, I pray again that you would just continue to work in his ministry, that you would continue to bring everything together for what we desire to see done in that area. God, we continue to lift up the Snowbird families to you as they begin to labor for this summer. God, as they're going to have students coming in regularly, God, we pray that you would allow the gospel to go out in in an expanded way, God, that you would see people drawn to you and drawn to your kingdom through the efforts of Snowbird this summer. And God, I just pray now that as we come together to study the word, Father, that you would be with our time together this morning, that the Holy Spirit would, would guide me in my teaching. God, that the words that I say today would come from you. God, that they would be a clear and accurate interpretation of the passage today. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would teach each individual heart today that we would receive both the encouragement and the conviction where we need it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 once again. We're continuing to work through uh, this book together. And um, over the past few weeks, we've been examining God's will for our life. What Paul says is our sanctification. The desire that God has to make us more and more holy on a practical level. We said that ultimately when we're saved, we are declared righteous, we are justified, our uh, account has been settled with God, that our sin has been forgiven, that Christ's perfection has been applied to our account, that that our salvation is, is complete, and yet there's still an aspect where it needs to be made complete. We still await our glorified bodies. We're still awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. And and so as we wait for that to happen, God is actively on a daily basis working out our our sanctification through the work of the Holy Spirit. Where we are becoming more and more like Christ and we are steadily and progressively giving up sin in our life on a regular basis. Um, We said that specifically Paul tells us about God's desire for our life in the area of sanctification. Um, As he begins to instruct this church about... um, how to handle their sexual desires. And he says in verse 2, or verse 2 and 3, For you know what instructions we gave you to the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand, And solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore whoever disregards this. Disregards not man but God. Who gives his Holy Spirit to you. We talked about some reasons that we should embrace God's will for our life in the area of sex. The first being his purpose for our life. That he has saved us to be holy. That he saved us to to be sanctified. That that's his will for our life. And so we embrace his desire in all aspects of our life. Specifically here, Paul tells us to embrace it in the area of sex because God has called us and saved us for holiness in this area. We said secondly that we should embrace God's will for our sexual desires because of his vengeance. It says that um, in verse 6, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. And we examined some passages where it talks about that when Jesus comes, he is coming, he is coming to pour out his wrath on sin. And every time there's a list of sins that uh, God is coming to pour his wrath out on, sexual immorality is included in that list. That ultimately God is coming to judge sin. People that are, that are not saved, that have not been redeemed, that don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, express these fruits or um, uh, seeds of the flesh that come out. And, and we see these lists of sins over and over when it talks about Jesus coming back. 
And sexual immorality is included in there. And so we have a responsibility to, to examine our lives in this area and embrace holiness in this area, recognizing that God is coming to avenge in this area. And then lastly, we said because of God's Holy Spirit, in verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so we spent some time talking about how God has given us the Holy Spirit, the Holy One, to make us holy. That on a practical daily um, standpoint, God has given us the Holy Spirit so that we can be made holy on a daily basis. And when we reject this type of teaching... When we continue to live in sexual immorality, we are not only rejecting the, the teaching of a man who, who maybe gives a sermon, or not only are we rejecting the Bible that we read, but we are ultimately rejecting God. We are rejecting His Holy Spirit who is drawing us to holiness in this area. We looked at some ways that we can um, fight for sexual purity in our life. Number one, we said that it was to abstain from sexual immorality, that we're to remove any influence in our life that would cause us to, to be tempted in that area. And we said that even, even to the point to where we have church members who are engaged in sexual immorality, that through exhorting them to repent, if there's rejection of that repentance, that eventually uh, Paul and, and Jesus would tell us to remove them from our fellowship for protection, that we cannot demonstrate to other Christians that, that sin can be tolerated in this community. And so we fight sin together by abstaining from sexual immorality. We talked about possessing our vessel. He says, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, that this is God's will, your sanctification, abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body. We said the literal interpretation there is possess your own vessel. We said there's two different ideas potentially going on there. That we need to possess our body, to control our body, to control our sexual desires. But that there also may be the implication that the way that we do that best, as Paul says, is to embrace pursuing godly marriage. That we embrace the responsibility that God has built me this way, God has given me these right desires, but he's given them to me to be enjoyed in the right way. And so we pursue godly marriage. Number three, we talked about acting like you know God. Paul says, don't act out in sexual immorality. This is what the Gentiles do who do not know God. And so we spent some time talking about how God always gives his commands in a way where they flow from his goodness. That we don't obey God to pay him back for our salvation. That we don't try to earn our salvation by being obedient to God. Those are two wrong mindsets. One of them is legalism where we're trying to earn our salvation, earn our favor with God. The other one we described as the debtor's ethic, where we're trying to pay back God for what he did for us. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for saving me. Here's what I can offer you, a life of, of trying to be obedient to you. But that's an incorrect perspective on being obedient to God. That instead we obey God because everything that we see in our past is for our good. And so if God is telling me to do this, it must also be for my good. We examined Exodus 20, where we have the, the probably the most famous to even lost people description of God's commands, the Ten Commandments. And before God even starts listing off, do this, don't do this, he prefaces it by saying, I'm the God who rescued, out of, rescued you out of Egypt. And he's not saying that so that they will pay him back. He's saying it because look what I've already done for you. I saved you out of bondage and slavery. You can trust me. You can trust me, you can know that I'm working for your good. So when I begin to give you these commandments as you go into the Holy Land, understand these commandments are for your good as well. And Paul says, do this, pursue sanctification, specifically in the area of sexual immorality, and act like you know God, because people who, who live in the passion of their lust are people who don't know God. And then we said lastly, which leads us into what we're going to see in the passage today, that we don't take advantage of others. He says in verse 6, no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Don't transgress and wrong your brother in the area of sexual immorality. Today we, we move into verse 9 where he says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, 
so that you may walk properly before outsiders and to be dependent on no one. We're beginning to see in chapter 4 that Paul is continuing to emphasize the faith, love, and hope format that he's been using in this book already. If you want to flip back to 1 Thessalonians 1, you'll remember when we were going through this passage in verse 3. Paul is commending this church that he has helped plant. He's commending them for their growth. He says in verse 3, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about right knowledge. That that their faith in God is a right doctrine that leads to right living. Where they are loving other people. And all that ultimately results in a right hope. That they're not hoping in the things of this world. They're not living for the things of this world. They're living for the return of Jesus Christ. We see that in chapter 1 verse 3. We also see it in chapter chapter 1 verse 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. How you turn to God from idols. That right doctrine. Turning from false gods to the right God. To serve the living and true God. Living a lifestyle of love towards others. And to wait for his son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We see this format again in chapter 3 verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Why does he want to go back to the church? We see that in verse 10 where he says that he wants to add to their faith. So he says direct our way to you so that we can add to your faith. We can, we can help your doctrine be more right. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Faith, hope, and love is all described here in in a format that Paul continues to use. And now he's using it on a bigger scale in chapter 4. Where in verses 1 through 8, he's talking about their right faith again in God. Trust in his goodness, specifically in the area of sex. Trust in his goodness, that what he has commanded in this area is for your good. Trust his goodness. Have right faith in God. And now we're seeing that he's going back to this idea of love. That you have a responsibility to love others. And as we'll see in verse 13, he comes back to the idea of hope again. That we're hoping rightly in the return of Jesus. In looking at 9 through 12, it's important that we understand there's a problem or issue being addressed. All right, He is writing to this church. I told you that in chapter 4, um, we're starting to get new instruction. Remember chapters 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 were all kind of a recap. Hey, remember when we came there and planted that church? Remember how you guys responded to us? Uh, and then he started talking about, hey, we've heard some things that are going on with you and we're really encouraged by that. And now we come to chapter 4 where he says, here's new instruction for you. Here's new things that you need to know and understand. And so he's addressing a problem here that's implied in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and even again in 2 Thessalonians. The problem is, first, in verses 1 through 8, some in the church were reverting back to their previous sexual activities. Some in the church were reverting back to their previous sexual activities. Okay, so 1 through 8, he's addressing the fact that Hey, overall, you guys are doing great, but some of you need to have some instruction about sexual immorality because you're, you're giving back into the temptation of your society. And I told you that it's very possible that their culture was um, far more uh, sexually immoral than even our culture. Even with the fact that we have Internet and, and television, um, and so it's more readily available in our culture. We said that their culture had absolutely no Christian influence. So nobody growing up in church, nobody growing up with Christian morals, nobody living in a country that was founded on Christian values. And so their culture was very debased. And it would have been very hard for them to make this drastic change from what the Bible calls sexual immorality to now living sexually pure lives. And so some of these Christians were starting to revert back to their activities, these previous activities. And so he addresses it in verses 1 through 8. But now we see another issue. The second issue is that some in the church had become too focused on the second coming and were neglecting their temporal responsibilities in light of this anticipation. They're so focused on the second coming that here's what's happening. Some of the people in the church are starting to reject their normal daily responsibilities. Their normal temporal responsibilities. 
they're starting to kind of put on the back burner because in their mindset, Jesus is coming back. We don't have to do these things anymore. I don't have to go to my job. I'm quitting my job. I've got other things that I've got to do because Jesus is coming back. And so the, the church is starting to break down from a financial standpoint because these guys are getting lazy and growing idle and saying, why do I need to go to, go to work anymore because Jesus is coming back? We see this in 1 Thessalonians 5 where uh, Paul tells them to admonish the idle. It's not that these guys are encountering uh, a lack of work because there aren't any jobs available. It's the fact that they just don't want to work anymore. And even in 2 Thessalonians, as we'll see when we get there, in, verse, in chapter 3, um, there still continues to be an issue of people not wanting to work and labor like Paul's instructed them to. It's kind of like, I experienced this this week as I was teaching. Um, it's kind of like how students get sometimes two or three weeks before summer hits. Like, I got so frustrated at my sixth graders this week because, I mean, they just kind of shut down. I mean, they stopped turning in homework. They stopped studying for tests. I gave them a really easy test on, on this past week, and most of them failed it. And I had to have a heart-to-heart with some of them. I said, look, it ain't summertime yet. Like, we still got stuff to do. we still got stuff to labor through. We've got responsibilities that we have got to complete before we start enjoying the summertime. And that's kind of what we have going on here with this church. They, they heard some teaching by Paul that Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back, like, death goes away, sin goes away, sorrow goes away. We enjoy God forever. And they're naturally excited about this. But they, they've gone to an extreme where they're saying, hey, that sounds so great. Let's just stop doing everything. Like, we're ready for that to happen now. And, and Paul's having to kind of correct them in saying that, look, we don't really know when he's coming back. And in light of that, we've got to make sure that we take care of what we're supposed to do now as we wait for Jesus to come back. How does this apply to us? Kind of some, um, some initial things that I wrote down. One, we have to be on guard against sexual temptation. You know, we've, we've already looked at verses 1 through 8. We've got to be on guard against sexual temptation because I told you that, that Satan and, and, and his forces want nothing more than to destroy the church. We look at different passages where Satan wants to destroy God's plans for the church. Obviously, we know that, that Satan can only do what God permits him to do, what God allows him to do. But that doesn't negate the fact that we need to be on guard. And so we need to be looking for temptation so that we can avoid temptation. But then secondly, we do need to anticipate the return of Christ while remaining focused on our earthly responsibilities. We anticipate the return of Christ while remaining focused on our earthly responsibilities. There's, there's two extremes that we could, we could see here. One is what they're doing. They are so focused on eternity that they've lost sight of the here and now. That's one extreme. That they, they've lost sight of the here and now because they're so focused on eternity. The other extreme is to be so focused on the here and now that we lose sight of eternity. Now, he's addressing an extreme that I'm not sure is really a struggle for us. Right? Like there, there's some people in our culture, I, I guess it was about a year ago, when, um, when the one guy was going around saying that the... Um, Jesus was coming back on May 12th, maybe it was, or, or some, sometime in May, then the end of the world was coming later on last year. And you saw a lot of people that embraced that teaching. They were selling everything. They were quitting jobs. They were emptying retirement funds. I mean, they were just, they were getting ready like Jesus was coming back. And I think that was probably similar to what was happening here in this church. Hey, Jesus is coming back. Let's, let's negate every here and now responsibility that we have to get ready for that. That's one extreme. I think what's more true for us today in this church is that we get more focused on the here and now that we lose sight of eternity. Like we don't probably have too much problem in our church with people being so focused on the second coming that you guys aren't wanting to go to work. You're not wanting to pursue things in this world because you're so focused on eternity. Probably what's more true for churches today is that the opposite extreme is true. We're so focused on the here and now that we almost forget on a daily basis that Jesus is coming back. And remember, when we planted this church, we said that we wanted to be a church that is very intentional to rally around the fact that Jesus is coming back. That that's our hope. All through the New Testament, the authors are telling us hope in Jesus, hope in his return. 
We've got salvation, but don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus is coming back, that it's not done yet. That Jesus is coming back. That's our hope. That's what we're living for. I'm afraid too often we lose sight of that on a daily basis. And we, we live for the here and now. We're focused on the things of this world. That we almost lose sight of the fact that Jesus is coming back. These guys were at the other extreme. That's all they were talking about. That's all they were thinking about. But it was leading to bad application. They were growing lazy. They were almost trying to enjoy the second coming before it happened. Okay? So some initial application that we see just immediately looking at it. Then we're going to break it down verse by verse. First is that we do need to be ready for the second coming. Paul's not denying that. Paul has been... Uh, talking about the second coming already in First Thessalonians. We do have to be ready for the second coming. We see this teaching in other aspects of uh, the New Testament. First Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any spiritual gift as you... Wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul talks to the church in Corinth about waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and even hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter, Peter even says that we should be hastening. We should be desiring it. We should be longing for Jesus to come back, but not in a way where it causes us to negate our responsibilities for the here and now. Even in Revelation twenty two twenty, after John had his big vision of uh, end time stuff and pictures of God's plan for the future, he, he kind of concludes his book by saying, come Lord Jesus now. Like, like I'm ready for this to happen now. So as believers, we should definitely be ready and longing and hoping and anticipating the return of Jesus Christ. But next in your initial application, we've got to be busy until the second coming. We've got to be busy until the second coming. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus is sharing a, a parable. And he's anticipating this problem. That some of the disciples were getting so anxious for the kingdom to come. You know, at times they would ask Jesus, is now when you're going to restore the kingdom? Is now when you're going to do the things that you promised to do for us? And Jesus has to kind of hone everything in. In Luke chapter 19, verse 12, he says... He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then returned, calling ten of his servants. He gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. He begins to lay out this parable of stewardship and responsibility that servants of this nobleman have to be faithful with what he's entrusted to them until he does return. Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples, look, it ain't happening right now. I got to go away for a while. And in the midst of me going away, you've got to be responsible with what I've left you with. We talked in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. We've been entrusted with the gospel. We've been entrusted with the gospel. We have to communicate the gospel. We have to love the gospel and meditate on the gospel. Even after our salvation, we're constantly coming back to the work of Christ. That is what makes us acceptable in God's eyes. We're entrusted with that. And so we've got a lot of work to do as we wait for Jesus to come back. In uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, this is when Jesus ascends back into heaven. What, what, what happens right after Jesus ascends back into heaven? You might remember? I mean, everybody's just kind of standing there. All right, when's he, when, what's going on? When's he coming back? And then we're told the two, two men show up in white, you know, most likely angels. They say, hey, what are you doing? Like, he'll come back. He's going to come back eventually. He's going to come back just like you saw him leave. But the implication is... Go do what he told you to do, the Great Commission. Remember what he just said, go make disciples in all nations? He can't come back right now because you haven't done that yet. So there's responsibility and work that's been entrusted to us that we have to be about until Jesus returns. And then we see in, in, in verse 12, back in 1 Thessalonians 4, ultimately living this way 
is an appropriate testimony to unbelievers. Because he says when we're loving others rightly and we're working hard, that we end up walking properly before outsiders because we're dependent on no one. Okay, so some initial application just in reading through it. We've got to be ready for the second coming, but we've also got to be busy until the second coming. All the while realizing that doing this gives a good picture or a good example or a good testimony to unbelievers. So we actually become evangelistic as we live this way. Alright, so we've talked about extremes. We've talked about focus. We've said that um, we've got to focus on the here and now and we've got to focus on eternity. Alright, so number one, we have the responsibility to be focused on the eternal by loving others. Be focused on the eternal by loving others. We want to try to find balance between focusing on the return of Jesus, but also focusing on the here and now. If we get to um, to the, the extremes of those, then we fall into sin. We're focused on the things of this world, or we've become idle and, and we've discarded our temporal responsibilities, neither of which please God. Okay, so the first is to be focused on the eternal by loving others. We are to love others, specifically believers, more and more. He says in verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Why should we love? Why why are we told to love here? The answer is we've been taught by God. He says, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God. The picture that we get in Scripture over and over and over and over again is that love is the evidence of salvation. That love naturally flows where real salvation has happened. Make sure you get that. Love always flows where real salvation has happened. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Just as I have loved you and you also are to love one another, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus tells them, he says, This is what makes it evident to others that you've really been saved, that you've really embraced the gospel, that you've really repented of your sins and turned in faith to Christ, is that you have love for the brethren. He says, this is how people will know that you're a Christian. This is the evidence that that will be demonstrated to others. We see this reciprocated in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John is is a whole book about what it means to be saved and how to know that you're a Christian. In 1 John 3, 14 and 15, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So when Paul's giving instruction here in 1 Thessalonians 4, he's basically saying, I don't have to give you initial instruction about love because that initial teaching comes directly from God. He's basically saying, you can't really be a believer. And Paul's already told him, I believe you're believers. I believe that you've accepted the gospel. You can't be a genuine believer and not know to love. It's a natural outflowing of the Holy Spirit. In um, Romans 5, 5. It says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, Paul says, you don't have to be taught to love initially because that's a natural thing that flows out of someone who's truly a Christian. Because God's love has been poured into us through the Holy Spirit, and then it flows out through the Holy Spirit's work in our life. Romans 5, 5, we get that. And we know from passages like John 14, Romans 8, Ephesians 1, that the Holy Spirit indwells people that are saved. So if Romans 5, 5 says that God's love has been poured into us through the Holy Spirit, 
and we know from these other passages that every Christian has the Holy Spirit, then Paul's right to say, I don't really have to initially teach you to love because this is a natural thing that true believers have. They have love for other people. To really understand the gospel, to really embrace the work of Christ, to really turn your back on the things of this world, it leads to a natural embrace of loving other people. And Paul says, I don't really have to initially teach you about this. And that's why he's so encouraged by what they're already doing. I mean, he, he gives evidence for the fact that, that they are already loving. He says, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. This, um, this word for love, this word where it says brotherly love, it's the Greek word where we get Philadelphia from. It's the, it's the, um, the word in Greek for love that's used in every sense in the classical Greek for family love. Okay, so it's the love that you would use for a family member. Every time it's used in the New Testament, it's used for love between Christians. Which kind of gives us a clue into the type of perspective we're to have with our relationships to other believers. That this was a word that was reserved specifically for the special family relationship between a, a dad and a son. A mom and a daughter. Like this was a family type love. Sibling love for each other. And in the New Testament, the authors attach it to the love that Christians are having to, for each other. So we get a glimpse and a picture of some theology there where um, our love is supposed to, to be a lot deeper probably than we give it credit for a lot of times in the church. You know, I, I've been a part of churches where the, the love that I had for people at that church didn't even come close to family type love. It was acquaintance type love. There was no way could it be described as family type love. And that's the love that Paul's calling him to here. He says, you're to have brotherly love for each other. Philadelphia type love. You're, you're to have an intense family love for each other. Now that you've been brought into this special relationship where you've been adopted into God's family. As I've been meditating on what it means for us to love within the church... You know, I've, been, I've been really trying to evaluate where do we stand as loving each other and how can we continue to grow in our love for each other. Because as great as their love is for each other here in this church of Thessalonica, Paul's not content with it. You know, and, and when we initially started talking about sanctification, we said that, that our sanctification continues until Jesus comes back. So even if we are striving to be faithful to love each other in this church, we can't be content with where we're at. So I jotted down two ways that, um, that we, the scripture teaches that we're to love each other. First is that we're to focus on meeting the physical needs of others. You see that laid out in scripture, that we have a responsibility to be conscious of physical needs that each other has. Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 through 40, uh, a second coming passage where Jesus comes back. And he's dividing people up. And what's the, what's the standard that he uses for dividing people up? Do you remember Matthew 25? And, and how does he know which one or which? Yeah, he doesn't say, if you pray a prayer, you're over here. If you never prayed a prayer, you're over here. If you went to church, you're over here. If you didn't go to church, you're over here. No, he says, those of you that took care of people that were in need, you're over here. You're Christians. Those of you that didn't take care of people in need, you kind of live selfishly focusing on your own needs, you're on this side. I mean, that's kind of the, the way that it's distinguished when Jesus comes back, who really was and who really wasn't a believer. People that took care of people in need, visiting people in prison, taking care of people in the hospital. Like he lists off different things where, where these people had been involved in serving other people. So we see this pattern in the New Testament that as Christians, as a church, we have the responsibility to care for the needs of each other, the physical needs of each other. In uh, James chapter 2, verse 14 and 7 through 17. James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
We said specifically this passage, we've said this before, this passage is talking about believers helping believers. If you see a, a, a brother who is in physical need, you have a responsibility to help that brother in Christ. We have a responsibility to meet each other's physical needs. But we also have to focus on meeting the spiritual needs of others. We have a responsibility to focus on the spiritual needs of others. In Galatians chapter 6, we've looked at this passage before when we've talked about church discipline and, and the purpose of church discipline to be um, to restore someone that has fallen into sin. And in Galatians 6, 1, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We said that, you know, we've taught, taught this before, that, that those verses are, there's a lot that has to happen for those verses to get lived out. Remember that word restore is, is like a, a splint? That when someone falls into sin, we're to restore them. We're to lift them up. We're to take care of them. Similar to the way you would put a splint on a broken finger. Someone who has fallen into sin that has become broken. We fix them. We help restore them. We draw them back to Christ. But even as they come back to Christ, there's healing that has to take place. There's accountability that's needed. There's encouragement that's needed as they're strengthened again in their relationship with Christ. And so we're told to act like a splint. That we're to restore them by, by really going far with it. You know, I don't just go to somebody and say, hey, you should stop doing that. That's sinful. Like, you need to repent of that. Great, see you later. No, like, we go to people in our church that we see falling into the deceitfulness of sin. As they're drawn out of it and drawn back to Christ, we continue exhorting them. We continue encouraging them. We continue lifting them up as we encourage them back to Christ. In Hebrews 3, 12 through 13... It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, see, this is convicting for me because the author of Hebrews is, is, is saying, we got to do this daily. Like, we have to be concerned about each other's spiritual condition daily. It can't just be Sunday to Sunday. Like, I'll talk to you on Sunday. I'll see you next Sunday. Hope you make it till next Sunday. Because the author of Hebrews is saying the, the deceitfulness of sin is so damaging that the allure of sin can be so enticing that we may not get till next Sunday. There may be people in our church that fall away between Sunday to Sunday. Especially new believers in our church. People that aren't as grounded in their faith. We've got to be exhorting them as long as it's called today. Because this, the deceitfulness of sin is so serious. Focusing not only just on the physical needs, but also on the spiritual needs. Next to those there, why is the need for love for others so important? Like, Why is there a need for love from others? Why do I need other people to love me? First, we need encouragement. We need encouragement. I, I was thinking about this week as I was meditating on this passage. Um, why is loving each other in a church so important? Like, why is that such a big focus in the New Testament? And I was, I was meditating on that, and I was thinking of different individuals in our church and different um, situations that you guys go home to after Sunday every week. Different family situations. You know, I began to realize that if Jesus promises, and he does, that his disciples will be hated, that they will be despised by this world, then it's absolutely necessary that I need to be encouraged by other believers, to be loved by other believers, because being hated can be discouraging. Like, there's individuals in our church that don't go home to good family situations, that don't go home to good... Christ encouraging situations. 
Some of us go home to great, uplifting situations. We go to great jobs where we get to interact with believers all week, and, and we have good family situations, and we come back on Sunday, and we've just had a great week as we've been with Christians all week. There's others in our church that go home to very bad situations when it comes to uh, encouragement towards sanctification. We need love in the church because being hated is discouraging. Jesus promises that his disciples would be hated. That we will encounter people throughout the week that despise what we're trying to do. That, that don't agree with the lifestyle that we're trying to live. That aren't trying to submit themselves to the word. So we need encouragement from each other because of what Jesus promises about us. That we're going to be hated. We're going to be despised. But then secondly, and this is true for, for me as well as for you, we need protection. We need protection because sin really can be deceitful. Love is so necessary in the church because we need that regular encouragement. It's not that I'm falling into sin. It's that there's a lot of pressure from the outside world not to make good choice decisions like, like God calls us to. Like there's a lot of pressure from the outside world. Why are you doing it that way? Why don't you do it this way? And some of you go home to those type of situations where you're not receiving encouragement to make good choices. Good, biblical, Christ-honoring choices. So we need that encouragement from the church to keep pressing on, to keep persevering. The book of Hebrews is full of passages that talk about it. That we have to persevere in the faith. And part of the way we persevere is by spurring each other on to good works. We meet together regularly. That's why we meet together every Sunday. To celebrate the resurrection and to encourage each other. Because sin is deceitful. Some implications for us. Talking about this church back in 1 Thessalonians 4. Their increased love is a direct result of their increased faith and trust in God. Their increase in love for each other was a direct result from their increase in faith and trust in God. The, the, when their doctrine was right, when their trust in God was right, it was leading to right living. We've talked about this. The faith, the love, and the hope that Paul continues to communicate to them. When their doctrine was right, when their hope in God was right, their trust in his goodness was right, it was leading to right love. And they're doing it. Paul's not rebuking them for not loving each other. He's commending them, but he's also encouraging them to go more and more with it. Their love had stretched throughout Macedonia. Remember when we first started this series, we were looking at... Um, what led Paul to Macedonia? Anybody remember what led Paul to this area? Why did he come to plant churches in Macedonia? Because it was a huge area where the gospel could go out. Like, 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 like I don't know, necessarily. Yeah, I mean, there was definitely aspects of the um, the amount of travel that took place to this area that would allow the gospel to go out. Then, Jake, you were hitting on it too, I think. Right, yeah, he had the, the vision of the dream of the man saying, come to Macedonia and share Christ with us. So Paul's, uh, his plans were redirected to Macedonia. And we've talked about some of the churches that were planted here. There was the church of Philippi. Then he comes to the church of Thessalonica. Then when he gets run out of Thessalonica, he goes to Berea. Paul's saying, you guys love each other. And not only do you love each other in your church, he says, but you love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. That's really convicting to me. Because not only had they figured out love within their church, they had taken that love to other churches in the area. So not only were they known for being a loving church towards each other, they were known in the community, in the Macedonia area, for being loving towards the other believers there as well. I mean, their love was, was going beyond the walls of the Thessalonica church, and it was stretching to the far reaches of Macedonia, similar to how their faith was. Remember in chapter 1, he says, your faith has sounded forth. He says to where, where people know all over Macedonia that you've turned to God from idols. Well, now he comes back and says, your love has sounded forth so that everybody also sees the fact that you're living what you claim to have been saved by. Chapter 1, your, your conversion has been sounded forth. Everybody knows that you're saved. Chapter 4, your sanctification has been sounded forth. 
people know that you're growing in Christ and you're loving each other. They were being known not just for their doctrine and conversion, but their action and sanctification. There's a typo there in your notes, brother. They were being known not just for their doctrine or conversion, but their action and sanctification. So number one, we have to be focused on the eternal by loving others. We do that by focusing on physical needs in each other and spiritual needs in each other. But then lastly, number two, be focused on the here and now by working hard. Be focused on the here and now by working hard. We're to live as faithful citizens until Jesus comes back. He says, concerning brotherly love, I don't really need to teach you. You have the Holy Spirit. It's a natural thing for Christians to do this. Keep doing it more and more. You've done really good at it because not only does your church feel love, people outside your church feel love. But I'm going to encourage you to do it more and more. Don't be satisfied with your love for each other. Keep pressing on in that. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more in verse 11 and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Why should we work hard? And the answer is we need to set a good example to the lost. We need to set a good example to the lost. If loving others is a evidence of our salvation, Paul's saying that working hard points other people to salvation. Matthew 5, 1 Timothy 2, and 1 Peter 2, they all talk about how, as Christians, the way that we live our life is meant to point Gentiles, lost people, to Christ. That by seeing our good works, by seeing our labor, by seeing the way that we handle the here and now, they're drawn to Christ. Okay, so we're evangelistic just simply by doing the things that we're supposed to be doing. We point other people to Christ. Paul gives us some clear instruction about what he means by that. And the first thing you notice there is to be quiet. Just to be quiet, to live a, a quiet life, to aspire to live quietly. He's trying to draw them back to some balanced urgency. Balanced urgency. John MacArthur, um, yeah, this is a, he said that Paul's basically telling them not to live a noisy, uncontrolled, overzealous, evangelistic lifestyle that agitates others while you wait on the second coming. Let me read that again to you. Don't live a noisy, uncontrolled, overzealous, evangelistic lifestyle that agitates others while you wait on the second coming. I kind of wrote down in my notes, let the gospel be offensive, not us. The way that we take the gospel should be done in a way where we're not being offensive to people. If anything's offensive, it's the message. The message that people aren't good enough to get to heaven on their own good works and that they need a savior. That's offensive. The Bible tells us that people will be offended by the gospel. That nobody likes to hear that in in their best effort, on their best day, they can't earn God's favor. But what was happening in this church in Thessalonica is that everybody was quitting their jobs because Jesus was supposed to be coming back. And they were becoming offensive almost as they were agitating lost people about the second coming. Their their methods, uh, the way they were spending their time Now that they weren't going to work anymore, they were so zealous for the second coming that they had neglected the here and now and were almost becoming um, fanatical about Jesus coming back. But that's that's not a takeaway for the fact that we're supposed to proclaim the second coming of Jesus to others. Like, we're supposed to do that. And 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 I've shared with you, now that Lauren and I have moved into um, uh, our new house in the neighborhood down the street with Tyson and Sarah living a couple doors down, that we want to be effective in communicating the gospel to our neighbors. That that is our focus. Like, we have got to get the gospel to these people. But it doesn't mean that we go in there and um, become weird and offensive as we try to proclaim the gospel. That we take care of our responsibilities, that we're good neighbors in that setting, And we are faithful to love and to serve and to take care of people in that neighborhood, all the while proclaiming the gospel to them. 
That if anything becomes offensive in what we're doing there, it's the message, not us. Paul tells them to live quiet lives. But again, this is an extreme that I don't think is what we're struggling with here. Their extreme was, quit jobs, Jesus is coming back. Be offensive, be, uh, be noisy, be loud, Jesus is coming back. I think if Paul was to write to our church or any of the churches in this area, he would almost have to write from the opposite perspective. You need to be more excited about Jesus coming back. You, you focus too much on the here and now. You've lost sight of the fact that Jesus is coming back. I think he would almost have to write to us and say, you've become too quiet. You're not telling anybody that Jesus is coming back. You're not offending anybody even with the message. You've become so quiet in your lifestyle that people drive by your house and interact with you as a neighbor and they don't have a clue that you're a Christian. They've never heard you present the gospel. They've sat next to you all day, every day in a, in a, in a class for this semester. They've gone to class with you and they have no idea that you're a Christian. I think Paul would have to write to us from the opposite extreme. He would say, you become too quiet. you become too focused on the here and now. I think as we read this, we see one extreme, but I think we almost have to identify ourselves as the other extreme. It tells them to be quiet, but also be laboring. Work diligently and faithfully so that you are not dependent. See, what was happening is that these people in this church were were quitting their jobs and other Christians were having to take care of them. Remember when we looked at Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4 where people in the church were selling their stuff and you know some people argued that they were almost setting up a socialistic type mindset where everybody was kind of pooling their money together and when you had something that you needed, you got it from one big source. Some people were starting to take advantage of this. They were, they were quitting their jobs and they were, they were relying on the church to take care of them. Paul goes on to eventually say in uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, if somebody's not willing to work, then the church doesn't need to be giving them a handout. You know, we've talked about this with our benevolent crew here that you know, we've got to be very discerning when we try to help people who are in need to make sure that they're doing everything they can to help themselves. Because Paul says we cannot have people taking advantage of the church. So he's, he's encouraging these believers. He says work hard so you don't have to depend on people. Remember we said in um, chapter 2 that Paul set the example for this. Remember he said I labored day and night so that I didn't have to take a love offering from you guys. Remember the pattern was for a speaker to come in town, preach and teach, and then hey, let me get some money to be paid for what I just did. Paul says, I came in with you guys and I worked hard all day long and then I met with you at night so that I didn't have to get any money from you because I wanted to demonstrate to you I was here for you, not for your money. So Paul had already set the example that we work hard as Christians so that we don't have to depend on each other. Knowing that the church is there when we really need it. When we really need the church to assist us financially if something happens in our life, that the church can then respond accordingly. Paul's saying essentially this is a way that we communicate that we love each other. We show that we love each other by working hard so that we don't have to depend on each other, but so that we can actually do the opposite, so that we can help serve each other. Look what it says in um, Ephesians 4.28. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul's basically telling us to do the opposite of what this church was doing. People in this church were quitting their jobs because they were Christians now and Jesus was coming back. But Paul actually says in Ephesians 4, now that you're a Christian, you should work maybe even more than you were working before so that you have extra cash, extra money to serve each other in the church. It's the exact opposite of what they were doing. They were saying, oh, Jesus is coming back. We're Christians now. That means we don't have to work anymore. Paul actually says, you're Christians now. Jesus is coming back. You need to work more. 
that you can take care of each other and love each other. So that you're not dependent on each other. Some implications to write down. Our love for others should keep us from having to be loud about our faith. Our love for, for others should keep us from having to be loud about our faith. And that's not to say that, you know, you know, I'm thinking in terms of, I want people in my neighborhood to know that I'm a Christian by my love for them. I don't want to have to, to proclaim it with, with signs on my car or, or, or signs in my yard or anything that says, hey, a Christian lives here. Because you wouldn't know it any other way. I not have to say you can't have stickers on your car that, that point people to Christ or, or wear t-shirts that point people to Christ or anything like that. But our love for each other should be so, so intentional. It should be so brotherly, that brotherly love where we're treating each other like family. That I don't have to be loud about being a Christian like he's saying don't be. That my love is showing others that I'm a Christian. That's what was happening in this church. Their love had sounded forth to where people all over Macedonia were recognizing that they were loving each other. And then next, tending to the here and now helps us become effective witnesses to others about eternity. And Paul's basically saying that, that we lose our ability to share the gospel effectively when we're not tending to the here and now like we should. That by working hard, taking care of responsibilities that we have here, we actually enhance our ability to share the gospel. That people can respect who we are, respect the way that we labor and work, respect the way that we're good citizens, so that the gospel is more effective when we share. Some applications that I want to leave you thinking about before we close. You can jot these two things down. Number, number one, what will our church be known for in this area? What will Sovereign Hope Church be known for in this area? As I was driving over here this morning, I was, I was thinking about different churches that, that I know of in this area and then even back in Griffin where we moved from. And I was thinking about the reputations that those churches have with me. Some of them good, some of them bad. I couldn't think of one that the reputation they had was with me was their love. There were some churches that were known for their fighting and for their division. There are several churches that I know are like that. When you tell me that name, when you say that name of that church, immediately I think of division and, and fighting and concentrating on things that don't matter. And there's other churches that you tell me, you know, you say the name and I think, oh, good pastor, good doctrine, like right theology, which isn't a bad thing. But I want our church to be known for far more than our doctrine and our theology. I want the reputation of our church in this area and in the, the surrounding areas to be our love for each other and for other Christians. In order for that, for that to happen, that necessitates us all working and laboring for that. What will our church be known for in this area? Our doctrine? Our theology? I mean, I happen to think that it's good and solid here, for sure. But I want to be known for far more than that. When people hear sovereign hope, I want them to think more than just good doctrine, good theology. I want them to think about the love that we have for each other and know that they've seen that love demonstrated in this area. And then lastly, will we actively seek to love others in this church or passively wait to be loved? Will we actively seek to love others in this church or will we passively wait to be loved? See, in order for, for this to work, everybody has to be actively trying to love each other. If there's a group that has to be loved by the group that's more mature and seeks them out to love, then the, the relationship begins to break down. See, I, I've talked with some of you, and some of you um, have expressed to me, you know, I don't always feel loved here. I don't always feel accepted here. 
I don't feel like people reach out to me and, and want to spend time with me. And inevitably, every time I have that conversation, very little effort has been put forth by that person who feels unloved. See, in order for this to work the way that Paul's talking about, this, this is given to everybody. He doesn't say, hey, the few of you that have been Christians for a long time, make sure you're loving everybody in the church and making them feel welcome and, and appreciated and wanted here. I mean, because he says the very brand new Christian has the Holy Spirit. I don't have to teach you to love other people, Paul says. It's something that just naturally flows because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Nobody has to teach you. God teaches you how to love. So in order for this to work right in our church, we can't have people who are passively waiting to be loved. Passively waiting for somebody to come find them. Passively waiting for somebody to call them and say, where have you been? That's why we've set up our small groups to be a way where you have to find somebody to spend time with each month. You can't just wait for somebody to spend time with you. You have to find somebody to spend time with in this church. Because we want everybody being active to love each other. Tyson's going to come and play. I want to encourage you guys to just spend some time reflecting. I shared with you before, we don't want to just end it and be done and immediately start tearing down and, and heading to lunch. Um, I want to give you a few minutes to reflect, to meditate on some of these application questions, to examine yourself. Where, where are you in regards to contributing in this church in the area of love? Will our church be known for its love based on how you're loving in this church, how you're serving others in this church? So I want to encourage you to take just a few minutes to spend time in prayer, reflecting. I hope that throughout this week you'll continue to meditate on what we've heard from the Word today. Really examine yourself and how you're seeking to love others. On the city this week, you know, I was sharing that when Jesus is instructing his disciples about loving their neighbors, that he has to radically transform their minds to see that you know, their neighbor includes even their enemies. Because you know, the guy that was dialoguing with Jesus there was, well, who is my neighbor? In a, in a way to where he wanted to kind of narrow that list as, as small as possible. Who do I have to love? And, and Jesus radically transforms it and shows the Samaritans love and how the Samaritan had reached out to someone that was considered an enemy in that culture. I'll share with you that, that obviously as, as Christians we have the responsibility to love each other, to, to not just love those that live right next to us and, and love people just in this church. So we're, to, we're to love everyone. That we're to be known for our love. But that certainly means that we should be Loving those that are closest to us. And, and one way for me, as your pastor, I'm specifically trying to apply this, is that um, you know, I want Lauren and I's presence in our neighborhood to be so intentional, to be, to be so mission-minded, that we are trying to, to do everything that we can to demonstrate love to the people that we live the closest to. I remember growing up, and we lived in the same house growing up from second grade all the way until I was out of college. I remember like our family didn't know anybody living in our neighborhood. Not only do I want this church to be known for its love, I want individually for us to be known for our love. We've been talking in our guys' discipleship group about uh, recently about hospitality, how leaders in the church are be known for their hospitality. And these are things that I'm wrestling with. I want to be intentionally examining myself and how I'm seeking to love others. I want to encourage you to do the same. Are you being faithful to, to look for the physical needs of others, to look for the spiritual needs of others? Specifically in this church, we've got to figure it out in this church before we can be known way outside of this church. So I want to encourage you to wrestle with this continually throughout this week. I encourage you to engage on the city with your with your different small groups. Um, if you don't have a city account and you would like to, to sign up for that, then you can see Ben today and he can get you emailed uh, a link to that. Um, it's a great way for us to, throughout the week, when we can't see each other, when we can't get together, 
to still be able to encourage one another, to dialogue about what we're learning together in the Word, and to, uh, to ask questions and to give encouragement. So I would encourage you uh, to do that this week. As we get ready to close, I want to remind you that um, the giving boxes in the back would encourage you to give today. Um, I'm excited about the things that we were able to look at this morning, about how our money's being used. You know, ultimately here at this church, we want to give in such a way that others know that money's not what's important to us, that Christ is all sufficient for us. He meets our needs, not our finances. And we always want to be able to demonstrate that to this area, that um, we give sacrificially. So I want to encourage you to do that today as you feel that. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll go. God, I thank you so much for the teaching that you give us in the Word. God, I thank you for the Holy Spirit as we've as we've seen from your word over the past couple of weeks, that the only hope that we have to be sanctified is the fact that you have filled us with your Holy Spirit. And I'm thankful that we can fight sexual immorality and pursue holiness because you've given us the Holy Spirit. And God, I'm so thankful that we can, um, we can learn to love each other more and more because we've been filled with the Holy Spirit, that we already know to love because we've responded to the gospel. So God, I'm so thankful that in our salvation, we don't have to complete the work of sanctification on our own, that you have given us the Holy Spirit. So God, I pray that we would rely on the Holy Spirit this week as we go to our different, um, our different environments, for those that go to school, for those that have jobs that they're going to this week. God, that we would be submitted to you in obedience, that we would pursue holiness this week. God, that you would protect us from sexual immorality. God, that we'd be able to fight against that, fight to uh, control our passions and desires and instead live in holiness and honor for you. God, that we would be faithful to love each other in this church. God, that we would identify and recognize those that, uh, that need spiritual encouragement right now. God, that we'd be able to recognize their spiritual needs. That we would be faithful to encourage and love the way that you called us to. God, I pray that we would work hard this week, that we would be individuals that, that take care of the here and now responsibilities, recognizing that in doing that, we are being evangelistic. God, I pray that we would be rescued from the extreme that we so often fall into and that we have sometimes forgotten the fact that Jesus is coming back. And we've grown quiet about it, too quiet. So God, I pray that we would find our hope this week in the fact that Jesus is coming soon to restore everything the way that it should be. And that God, we'd be faithful to proclaim that message to others. That we would be balanced in our urgency by taking care of the here and now while ultimately looking to eternity. And ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.